Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Uh, and Ed, it seems to me that you are getting ready for uh, Thanksgiving. Is that right? You're visit- You're off visiting family, making merry, wassailing, perhaps, doing very many things, which actually all the things I described are sort of more Christmassy than Thanksgiving. But you're you're doing very many things that are Thanksgivingish. Are, are you not? Uh, yes, there's a there's a gathering of the extended tribe. Um, although it's, I mean it's funny. I even if you strip my family back for Thanksgiving to my immediate family. Well, that doesn't sound like an appropriate thing to discuss on the podcast. Ho, ho, ho. Um, no, but if you, if you limit Thanksgiving to just my immediate family, as in my parents and my siblings and their spouses and children, we'd still be more than 30 at the yeah, table? Yeah, because you come from, you have 30? a big family and your siblings have spouses and... Many children. Dating significant others and many children and all of the things. So you have a, a table of plenty. It's It's going to be a busy... It's going to be a busy year this year. Um, yeah. At the table, I I don't know how that's going to go, but there's there there's much meat. We 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 have the whole turkey to honor the old gods. There is uh, many pounds of extremely choice beef for the smoker. Uh, there will be pork belly. It is yeah. There's there's a lot to do. Um, it's going to be a busy thirty six hours preparing for this meal. That's for sure. Well, that, that's wonderful. So glad to hear it. That's great. Fantastic. Uh, we today on the Pillar Podcast, Dad, I mean, we can't spend all of our time talking about your Thanksgiving. I know that you would prefer that, but we have things to talk about, and uh, I would like to get to them if you don't mind. Okay. I mean, if you want to spend the entire episode talking about the proper preparation of meat, I, I, I'm i game for that, but I understand if you want to talk about other things. I hope game was a pun there. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't, but I'm, I'm going to take credit for it anyway. Okay, Ed, uh, I will ask you a question. I have very many questions that I'll ask you later about turkeys and other things, but just uh, did you know um, that uh, one side of the turkey has more feathers than the other? Did you know that? I learned that today from my son, Daniel, who's five. When you say side, is this left, right, or over, under? Do you know which side of the turkey has the most feathers? I would say the back. The outside. Oh, ho, ho. I wish I had the soundboard today. I didn't break out the soundboard because we're not doing a live show or anything like that. So, I, But I wish I had the soundboard so I could make the sad trombone sound after that or the did, live did studio you, audience sound. Did your son actually ambush you with that? Did you not know the answer? Or did, is that dad humor that you told your son? Uh, I didn't know the answer when he when he posted to me. That was good. Then if if yeah. if if your son managed to stump you with that, that, that was good. That was good skills. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so last week, Ed, you and I were in Baltimore for the um, for the annual fall meeting of the USCCB, and we recorded a live episode of the Pillar Podcast, which I think was a great deal of fun, in which we had some discussion about the USCCB meeting. We talked a little bit about the format change, uh, why that led to effectively a kind of a boring meeting. Um, we uh, we talked about elections. Did, did, we talked about elections. Do I recall correctly that we talked? We did. About elections? Yes, we talked about elections. Okay, we talked about elections. But there are a few things that we didn't talk about that came out of the meeting that I feel like we could talk about because on this Thanksgiving episode, Ed, I would like us to focus in as much as we can on um, things for which we are thankful, and um, uh, you know, especially in the life of the church, and uh, and you know, we often bring. We can you hear that? trying very hard to find a quiet corner of the house to record in, and now there's a vacuum cleaner banging up against the door of the only room I could find. I, I can't hear it. I can't hear it. Oh, you will. Ed is being driven slowly mad. We're leaving all of this. Ed is being driven slowly mad. You know, Ed is, uh, as many of you readers, excuse me, listeners know, is a particular is particular about things and places and persons. And, um, and so Ed has been looking forward to, and he's been telling me about it for weeks, how much he's been looking forward to visiting with his family. And he told me this morning that he's having a great time, but he also is outside of his own space and, uh, and is being driven. I think, is it fair to say slowly mad by that? You're, you're haunted by the sound of phantom vacuum cleaners everywhere you go. Is that, is that accurate? Vacuum cleaners, carpentry being performed in different rooms of the house. Uh, you're not wrong. I I like my little comfort zone. I like my little office. I like I, I like being in control. I'm a control freak, JD. I think I don't think this is a surprise to anyone. Um, and and yes, I'm being driven slowly mad is not a is not an unfair characterization. Okay, well, before you stopped me to tell me that you could hear a phantom vacuum cleaner, what I was saying is that I would like us to focus in this week's episode on 
um, our own thanksgiving, the things in which the life of the church, for which in the life of the church we are thankful or we recognize very many um, good things. And the reason for that, of course, is because we talk about a lot of things on the Pillar Podcast, but, you know, we focus on governance in the life of the church, and we don't shy away from talking about challenges in governance in the life of the church. And, you know, I just thought for Thanksgiving week it might be appropriate if we sort of highlighted some of the things which are happening, which are which are um, um, sources or signs of uh, life and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. How does that sound to you? I feel like that's a good <laughs> thing for us to do. I I also feel like perhaps I, I could have prepared better for this had I known well, that's but okay. That's fine. You, that's okay. I, that's okay. You, you, uh, you'll be fine. Because the first thing that I want to talk about is something that I think you and I both said was sort of um, prominently evident at the conference, which is that... Uh, so I want to talk about a couple things that came up at the bishop's meeting last week, and I think you'll probably want to do so as well. But one of the things that was... Uh, one of the sort of surprise points at the conference, something which um, which wasn't even... I had been aware I was on the agenda, but it ended up being a really big moment, I think, was a speech by Archbishop Boris Gudzik about um, the state of the church uh, in Ukraine. And uh, I, I heard a number of people sort of say after the Archbishop gave that speech that, in fact, they said Archbishop Gudzik was sort of the man of the meeting, that uh, his speech left a, a really profound impact on a lot of bishops and a lot of attendees. The Archbishop talked, obviously, about the situation of crisis in Ukraine, which is still parts of which are still under occupation and which is still at war. And that war, you know, if you read the paper today, is escalating with um, with uh, missile strikes and these kinds of things. So the, so um, even while it's concentrated now in particular areas, the, the war is, uh, is uh, the violence is um, really picking up or the fighting is picking up at the moment. Um, but the archbishop said at the same time, he has seen um, a lot of grace among the Ukrainian people and a lot of grace in the life of the church. He talked about the presence of the church being very, very close to people. That um, that people and and I had some co- some conversations after the his, com- his his speech in which he talked about this more, in which the church um, uh, to say you know not to laud obviously the hardship which I don't think he would ever wish to do, but in which people who who are not ordinarily engaged in the life of the church were much more connected to hearing the gospel and uh, much more aware of the presence of the church vis-a-vis her really necessary social ministry of resettlement of people who are fleeing certain areas and food assistance and providing just spaces for people to be that are safe. And then the sort of pastoral and sacramental ministry of the church has also been very meaningful, even while this the entire war has meant a profound ecclesiological sort of shakeup in Ukraine. I think that's right. I mean, it is, um, it is a fact. It's been borne out in 2,000 years of history that the gospel is perceived in all of its urgency most acutely in places of of injustice and human suffering that, you know, the message of Christ lands harder when confronted with the reality of, of human injustice and human violence. And I think um, that that is certainly being shown in, in Ukraine right now. Uh, and, and I think you're right. I think Archbishop Gajak's um, speech to the conference's update had a, had a market effect. I mean, it was interesting. One of the, one of the interventions uh, from the floor that caught my attention in the course of the meeting was from Cardinal McElroy of San Diego, mm-hmm. who who got up and... After Goodzik's speech. After Goodzik's speech and said that, you know, the conference really needed to, you know, exercise whatever political muscle it had in Washington um, following the midterms to make sure that there was no interruption in the flow of, of aid, including arms. Military uh, aid, yeah. Yeah, to, to yeah. Ukraine um, in, in support of its defense. So I, I was surprised by that. You don't often see bishops sort of, you know, getting up from the floor of the conference, let alone cardinals, to say, we have to make sure we keep shipments of arms going um, and, you know, lobby Congress to that effect. So I think the profundity of what Archbishop Boris told the conference uh, was definitely there to be seen. Yeah, you know, what uh, McElroy said is he said, look, I am... Uh, I am an advocate for um, nonviolence. He said, I'm an advocate for peaceful negotiated solutions to conflict at all levels. He said, but this resistance is just and meritorious. I'm just pulling up my notes. He said, this resistance is just and meritorious, and therefore, you know, the conference should be willing to help. Now, there are people who kind of push back and say, well, you know, the the last thing the conference should be doing is be sort of advocating for 
the kind of fusionist politics that will get us sucked into the war and those kinds of things. And of course, you know, I, I don't think that what McElroy said is um, Ukraine's war to fight is our war to fight. Rather, um, I think he said that we should um, do the kind that he thinks that the conference should advocate for a kind of political solidarity in a kind of resistance, which he thinks is a just resistance to an oppressive force. Um, and I was struck by that in part because I was struck by kind of the... Um, uh, that seemed to be a a thoughtful um, exercise of the churches, by Bishop McElroy. That seemed to be a you know thoughtful, Cardinal McElroy. reflective. Excuse me, Cardinal McElroy, reflective, um, thoughtful exercise of sort of the church's criteria for just war. That he went through. You know, he kind of demonstrated in his intervention. I went through a kind of um, intellectual exercise in which I gained as much information as I could about this, and then made a moral assessment about it. And um, while I'm uh, while I sort of defer against. Uh, warfare, I, I come to the conclusion that this is just a meritorious uh, resistance. And I thought that was an interesting sort of example, not only of his sense of solidarity with the Ukrainian people, but I thought it was also just an interesting example of kind of demonstration of Catholic moral reasoning and actual application of sort of like, I went through this thing and did this reasoning in the way that Catholics do this reasoning. Yeah. And, and I think that reasoning has been done um, by Catholics in a lot of places, including in the hierarchy of the church. I mean, Pope Francis has been very public in his continued overtures to Moscow to meet with, for example, Patriarch Carol of the Russian Orthodox Church and also Russian President Vladimir Putin and say he wants to be an emissary of peace. He wants to, mm-hmm. you know, he's called on um, President Zelensky of Ukraine to, you know, make himself available for peace negotiations and, and all this. And he's he's taken a fair bit of criticism on the world stage for appearing to, um, at times, equivocate or, um, you know, not sufficiently condemn the injustice of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all this while seeking to sort of hold himself out there as a, as a possible avenue and broker for some kind of ceasefire. Uh, but at the same time, the Holy See has been very clear, including through the Secretary of State Cardinal Paroline, that Ukraine's right to self-defense is real and it is an innate right and it is a, and it is a right they are justly exercising. That you know, It's not an obligation of um, Christian morality, that they sort of roll over for the Russian tanks. On the contrary, that they have a right to defend themselves. They have a right to defend and an obligation to defend the innocent uh, within their own borders and all these things. So um, I, I think you're right. I mean, Catholic moral reasoning in, in the face of armed conflict is, is, is a messy science, um, but it's one that has to be done and is being done, um, including in, in the situation in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I found interesting is a point that, that Goodzik made at the beginning of his speech. Uh, he says, uh, What's happening now is veritably a genocide, um, which is, you know, and it, he said it has characteristics of a genocide. It, it does. I mean, you look at what's going on in eastern Ukraine and has been going on in the occupied territory since the beginning of the war. You have uh, certainly mounting evidence of massive casualties, war crimes being committed, but also the mass deportation of people. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said going along with that mass deportation of people that namely Ukrainian populations are being moved into sort of far eastern Russia. Um, he said, uh, you have um, a couple of bits of messaging from the state, from Russia. You have, first of all, the denial from the state that any kind of war crimes are, are happening or have happened, and then a kind of consistent pattern which defines the Ukrainian people as subhuman. He says, sort of think about the way in which, from the beginning of the invasion in in, uh, in February, the sort of uh, um, Russian line has been, well, the Ukrainians are Nazis, the Ukrainians are Nazis. And he says, what is that doing? But it's a subhumanizing thing, which is meant to justify these kinds of genocidal things, both the forced deportation of large swaths of a population and then crimes against civilians. And so, you know, Bishop Goodzik drove that home last week. And then yesterday, you know, we have talked about the Pope's um, engagement with Ukraine and the way in which Ukrainian bishops have been frustrated about the Pope. And of course, at Easter, the sort of stations of the cross, or Good Friday, the kind of stations of the cross thing where the Pope had a Ukrainian and Russian woman do a station of the cross together. And people were very upset by that and these kinds of things. But yesterday, the Pope at his audience, spoke very strongly to compare the uh, war in Ukraine to uh, a genocide, right? To to declare the war in Ukraine to a genocide, um, and then to say, let's pray for the victims of this genocide and pray for all Ukrainians, children, women, elderly, the babies. So he he uses the word, um, and in a way that is a a big shift from the Pope, who I think had had a great deal of hope that he was going to have kind of ecumenical, uh, the possibility of a much better ecumenical relationship with Kirill than has been proven to be the case. And I think probably his impatience with that, plus the ongoing sort of reality of the war, has meant a real shift in papal tone there. You know? uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for the shift in papal tone. 
because as I've said before, I think on the show, and I know I've, I've written about this at least once, accompanying Francis's blunt calls for some kind of ceasefire, some kind of peaceful resolution, some kind of everything. There's only two obvious ways that happens, which is either Russia is forcibly turfed out of all Ukrainian territories by force of arms, which raises a host of questions and risks, including, you know, as they have threatened to do in terms of the use of nuclear weapons by Russia. So there's there's that problem. But the, the other alternative is the acceptance tacitly uh, or otherwise of, of some kind of continued Russian presence in the occupied territories. And, you know, what I've always said is um, if you want to talk about some kind of peace that and accept some kind of Russian presence in Ukrainian territories – that that's an opinion to have and that's a corner to fight if you want but it means you have to accept with open eyes what you are in fact tolerating which is the continued genocidal actions of Russia in those territories and that you know there's no such thing as a just call for peace that doesn't recognize the cost that that peace will come with for the people in those regions so i i'm glad to see the pope you know acknowledging the reality on the ground in ukraine i think that's that's very good. I mean, you you say that you know there there had been hopes, uh, perhaps in Rome, perhaps for their brother, there would be a sort of um, ecumenical channel opened or something between Francis and Kirill. But I mean, of course, the other thing that we have seen over the course of the Russian invasion is that Catholic ecumenical dialogue has improved with the Orthodox. As a result of the Russian invasion, it has been a weird sort of just not with the Russian Orthodox, just not with everyone else, basically. Right, but certainly to the with point where there are conversations going on about Easter, right, about a shared yeah. date, not sort of broadly across the entire Orthodox world, but the Pope is having conversations with Orthodox leaders about a shared date for Easter, which is um, a big sort of point of n- not theological division, but historical and cultural division that that in in some parts of the world that, that sort of straddle the line between the Eastern Catholic world and the Orthodox world, or um, in which there is a, a mix, or Eastern Catholics are in the minority, in which this sort of di- differing dates for Easter is a really pronounced point of division that can be really difficult for f- for families, you know, for in, for real, actual families. This can be a real difficult thing. So the fact that there's a conversation going on right now about the fact that uh, the Pope's saying, I really want to get to a shared Easter, and I want to get there by 2025, um, whether it happens or... Uh, not you know, Patriarch. I, I I'm just reading this. The Patriarch Bartholomew, uh, the the, uh, the the Ecumenical Patriarch um, of, of Constantinople, is saying that these conversations are underway. That the, that an agreement could happen. So it's it's this is a very big, significant, symbolic point of ecumenical unity. Yeah, that we could even have these conversations is something that in recent years we would have thought was totally beyond the pale. And I mean, it, you mentioned that it's a problem for families. I. Um, another another guest, JD, a guest speaker, a special guest speaker in Baltimore this year was um, the patriarch of Latin, uh, the patriarch of Latin, the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, Archbishop Pizzabala, Pierre uh, Battista Pizzabala, which is the most wonderful name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so much fun to say. You get satisfaction if you've never said the name Pierre Battista Pizzabala. I invite you to just say it five times to yourself quietly now, and and I defy you not to end with a smile on your face. It's Every time someone says Pizza Bala, I picture Michelangelo, the Ninja Turtle, popping up from a sewer grain and saying, whoa, just at the at the amazingness of the name. That it, is a, it is a great name. Anyway, he, he was saying— Pizza Bala was there, and he gave another address. So, so it was super interesting because since the bishops now are having all their conversations behind closed doors, they have more time to hear from people, and some of those were not interesting, but we're talking now, right now about the ones that were— um, Pizza Ball gave about an, I don't know, 45-minute talk about It was going to be a 10-minute talk, and it ended up being about 45. Yeah, he's the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, which actually means that that he his sort of diocese, his particular church, covers the Christian communities of four nations with borders that are not easily crossed. And so his community is sort of has all kinds of challenges, as you can well imagine. But and he, and uh, he, he said to the bishops while he was, he said, when I'm celebrating Easter, about half of my flock are still in Lent. Yeah, that's right. You know, so this is this is a real deal. The ecumenical progress is a real deal because even because there are even Eastern Catholic churches. You know, there are Eastern Catholic churches. So the Latin Catholic Church celebrates Easter on a particular date, and we have a whole explainer in the pillar about why this is. But historically, there are all kinds of reasons having to do with a switch from one the use of one calendar to another, the Julian calendar, the Gregorian. But the Latin Catholic Church all celebrates Easter on the same date. Eastern Catholic churches, I think, all officially have Easter on that date. But many Eastern Catholic churches 
Um, actually, do they all have? Do Eastern Catholic churches all officially have Easter on the same date as um, as the Latin Catholic Church? There is nothing with which I am willing to assert with total confidence regarding <laughs> all the Eastern Catholic churches, except that they share a common yeah. fundamental law in the Codex Juris Canonici for the Eastern Catholic churches. So uh, I uh, now I'm not sure whether it, whether what it is is that you know what JD there was Catholic a time churches, when the Latins were fighting each other physically as well as spiritually. The, the 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 history of England, the ecclesiastical history of England, JD, as so often is the case, is extremely instructive on this point. There the the evangelization of of England proper, and I'm not saying England is a standard for Britain. I'm saying England is in England. Yeah, rule Britannia. Um, I get it. No, that's a different thing. Stop that. Um, the interesting part of the history is of course it was evangelized in a sort of two-pronged attack um you had you had the the italian latins uh, that landed in canterbury with augustine and and sort of came up through kent and everything and then you had the irish monastics who came across into scotland and down from scotland and produced all the great saints around seas like lindisfarne and things like that um and then sort of met in the middle, but there was a point where half of the country, the Celtic half was celebrating Easter in one calendar and the, and the sort of Italian Roman half in the South was celebrating. And I mean, they came to blows over this. It was a real thing that, you know, when to celebrate Easter is not a weird quirk of the calendar in the church. It is an extremely, and I'm going to use this word advisedly and you are not permitted to intervene. It is a fraught issue, JD. (laughs) It's fraught with many challenges. No, it is fraught with many, many challenges and many, many, and many, many significance is much significance because it's it's definitely fraught with much significance because um, the the choice of a date for the celebration of Easter between sort of the Orthodox date and the Latin Catholic date date in many places can convey whether or not one intends to express solidarity and unity with the Roman Pontiff, right? Who made the switch from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, and who uh, you know who oversees the obviously the Latin Catholic Church, which celebrates Easter according to the Gregorian calendar. And so um, the date for Easter can symbolize one sort of ecclesiastical loyalties and, and the, you know, and become a very significant symbol of that, which is why it can be so divisive in families, which is why it was so divisive in the history of England, which is why this conversation about it, it's not just a perfunctory thing that there would be one Easter, one date for Easter, which again is is something that many, many Christian leaders are now saying they're having a conversation about not something which is definitively going to happen and which may well not happen, but the possibility of a unified date for Easter carries with it a kind of expression from both the Catholic communion and the Orthodox communion of contrition for past animosities and a desire for Christian unity, even amid substantial, significant, and profound disagreement about what Christian unity actually means, and most especially about the place of Peter relative to the place of the patriarchs in the particular church in the achievement of Christian unity. So it would not be insignificant at all. It would be profoundly significant for Orthodox leaders and the Roman pontiff to have unity on the date for Easter. And the amazing thing is that the Pope has said that he's totally open to sort of being flexible about when that date is, that no one, that he's not sort of holding on to, we want to have one date for Easter and you better do it our way. But it would be a symbol of goodwill towards Christian unity, which of course our Lord desires, that would be very, very significant. And it is happening in the context of the Ukrainian war, to be sure. And it is happening in a certain way because of a kind of new solidarity that has emerged between Bartholomew and the Roman pontiff and other Orthodox churches as they deal with the problem of Kirill in the Orthodox communion or outside of the Orthodox communion. I mean, I do not think that Kirill would be on board for a revised Easter, um, barring oh, no. some profoundly I, contrary It wouldn't thing. shock me if Kirill said he's going to come up with a third date for Easter, just to, <laughs> because he thinks he's simultaneously the new Constantinople and the new Rome. So, I mean, you know, why Well, I mean, he? that's the theology of the thing, right, is that the, is the, the, the theology of the Patriarchate of Moscow is such that, and this is the reason why this... Um, Ruski Mir thing has become so prominent is because there's a, a sense in which Russian nationalism is a kind of Christian triumph because of this idea that Moscow is the new Rome, and which uh, is and hilarious so, because it's rooted to the to a Caesaro Papist ecclesiology of um, you know where Caesar is there is the seat of the church, but of course right. as near as I can recall they shot the Tsar more than a hundred years ago, and so the idea that having a sort well, of Kirill you know, didn't shoot him as no Kirill didn't shoot him but my point. To point out. Well, yes, but I mean, I just I find it amusing that a, a 
a former member of the Soviet Communist Party and KGB agent is now considered to be the new right. agent right. of, you know, yeah. Christian revanchism in your, I mean, it's, it's just so completely ridiculous. Ed, you cannot look at the particularities of real, actual and living history if you wish to look, look at the ideology of history. That, that's true. Which brings you to some sort of omega point of your own, in which you're the protagonist of the universal destiny of all mankind. That's true. I'll, I'd never you make it good. can't let pesky facts get in the way of becoming the universal omega point of the destiny of all mankind. I apologize. You're quite right. <laughs> so it was. Uh, so we're kind of all over the place now, but I think there's a... Are we? I was just thinking, given I didn't know what we were going to talk about, I thought we were doing really well. This, no, this we're is... doing really well, but we've kind of moved because, because the good sick thing pertains to this ecumenical stuff, this Easter stuff... And um, and the way in which the, these conversations are unfolding, you know, we began with Goodzik, and now we're sort of talking about this Easter thing and and Kirill and all of this. But um, but the, they are all connected in a way that I think Goodzik demonstrated um, there in, in Baltimore. And um, and I, I don't know, you know, the extent to which um, I don't know the extent to which the U.S. bishops have been paying attention to these orthodox these questions in orthodoxy about jurisdiction in in Ukraine. Um, you know, the kind of fragmentation and realignment of orthodox communions in Ukraine. But um, I think Bartholomew would say, I suspect Goodzik would say as well, that uh, in one way or another, the Holy Spirit is kind of at work in the ways in which Orthodox believers and Catholics have been talking to each other as a result of all of this. I certainly think that's true. Would you like to talk about Vatican finances for a few moments? There's a lot happening. Actually, there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening right now with regard to an issue that is very important to us, namely financial administration at the in the Roman Curia. And that, that's uh, true. I'd like to hear about I'd like us to talk about some of the big are, are developments we that we've reported. Talk about it or is this one of those you're just going to ask me to do a 5-minute news bulletin and then we move on? No, you you talk for a while and then I'll say something and then you say something and then it'll sort of and then we'll talk for a while and then I'll say we'll be right back afterward from our sponsor. <laughs> I feel like you're once again shoeboxing the most interesting thing that we could unpack. <laughs> You know, I, fine. You know, we 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 reported this week on you know a, a trove of confidential Vatican financial memos and reports that seem to substantiate the narrative of the former Auditor General who is suing the Vatican for wrongful dismissal and may be facing criminal prosecution in Vatican City as a response to that. Meanwhile, Cardinal Angelo Becciu has lost a series of lawsuits in Italian courts and is facing mounting penalties and damages and legal fines and fees in the tens of thousands of euros. But, you know, if you do, if you don't think that that's what people really want to hear about, I, there's it. a lot there for people me to be grateful about. People want to hear about, about it. Do it. There, there's a lot for me to be thankful about there. I do can tell it. you that. You know what? No, Actually, I, you know how much time I want to give you to this? We're going to talk about it in a minute. But first, we will be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Catholics. It is time to take a good look in the mirror and ask yourself if you are living life to the fullest, spiritually, personally, intellectually, and in all ways, really. And logistically, JD. And logistically. Logistically is the main is one of the main points here, because as all of us know, God is calling each one of us uh, to sainthood, to greatness of soul and greatness of life. But, you know, um, sometimes that's the path we're on, and sometimes we get in our own ways. Sometimes one of the things that keep us from holiness are extremely practical— our organization, our planning, our commitment to doing the day-to-day things which we know will help us to grow in the spiritual life and grow in our personal lives as well. And a wonderful way in which you can offer yourself a little extra logistical support, a daily guide, if you like, a way of charting your own progress in the internal life and the spiritual life, as well as, you know, keeping yourself on course for your days. To-do lists is The Saint Maker, a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner to help you reignite your faith, succeed in life, and experience True spiritual growth. Guys, thousands of Catholics are already using the Saint Maker, and they report concrete, amazing, fantastic, helpful results in getting their personal lives organized, and especially in making time for prayer and making time um, for the spiritual life every day. And the Saint Maker is offering you a free trial offer through their kind sponsorship of this podcast. You can try it for 90 days risk-free if you decide it's not for you, and I doubt very much that you will. You can return your Saint Maker for a full refund, including shipping, and Pillar listeners can get 10% off their first Saint Maker by visiting thesaintmaker.com slash pillar and using the promo code PILLAR, all caps, at checkout. It's more than a planner. It's the Saint Maker. Saintmaker.com, promo code PILLAR.
All right, everybody, we are back, and uh, we are back on the Pillar Podcast, and there are two things that I want to talk about in the second half of this episode. Uh, the uh, the first one, I have been promoing subtly and slyly the entire time. That's actually the second thing we're going to talk about, but I've been, I keep saying it's our Thanksgiving episode. I want to talk about Thanksgiving, and it's because I'm doing a little wordplay. But before we talk about Thanksgiving, I want to talk, Edward, about uh, some really actually huge developments and um Pieces of information that we reported this week at the Pillar as pertain to the administration of finances at the Holy See, um, because we got a hold of some internal memos, some 2016 memos uh, from the Vatican's Council for the Economy and um, and the the Secretary for the Economy, which is basically like the office that oversees financial reform, and then the kind of group of cardinals that oversee the office which oversees financial reform. We got a hold of some internal 2016 memos, which uh, which uh, confirm a lot of things that we had known about. Um, and then we talked with some sources who, who shared some very interesting things about sort of the independence of the entire effort to independently audit and um, assess the financial condition of the Holy See, which had a lot of people ticked off because it would mean some supervision of their checkbooks. And uh, we have just a lot of information about that. And um, uh, go for it, Ed. Uh, well, I, I mean, as you said, there is a lot to report, so I'm I'm almost kind of wondering where to begin so i i will keep this tight as as anyone who's been reading our coverage knows um the former auditor general of vatican um libero maloney has announced that he is suing or attempting to sue the secretary of state and his former office in vatican city court for wrongful dismissal because in 2017 he was forced into threat of criminal prosecution to resign um the the secretary of state at the time, in the person of Cardinal Angelo Becciu, then the sustituto, uh, said he was guilty of spying on senior curial officials, including Becciu. Others, including Maloney, would say that what he was doing wasn't so much spying as auditing them, which is what an auditor does. Um, but anyway, so he's he's had all of that sort of going on for the last couple of weeks, and we've been reporting on that. But yes, this week we got a hold of um, a number of internal and confidential financial memos around the Council for the Economy that seem, I think, to shed an interesting light on the circumstances around Maloney's departure and also the sort of total turnover. I mean, for people who don't remember, in 2014, Pope Francis sort of creates all of these new offices, the Council for the Economy, the, Pre- the Secretariat for the Economy, the Office of the Auditor General. 2015, he sort of fills all of the positions and they start making policies and you know, plans and everything. And then in 2016, the rubber starts to hit the road. They, you know, these, these new financial accountability and transparency offices start trying to enforce financial transparency and accountability on Vatican departments and everyone just sort of freaks out. And then by 2017, Cardinal Pell is out of office. Libro Maloney is out of office. Their departments are basically ground to a halt. Uh, the work stops and the tide of financial reform appears to go out for several years up until 2019 when the when the financial scandal and the Secretary of State breaks into the news. Then, you know, the, the sort of the flames grow steadily brighter and stronger. And then in 2020, Pope Francis seems to throw the whole thing into reverse again. Um, all the financial reforms come back into play. Uh, ten people go on trial from the Secretary of State, including Cardinal Becciu. A new Auditor General is appointed. We get a new permanent prefect for the Secretary for the Economy, and sort of, you know, the tide comes back in. So, I mean, the temptation would be looking at some of the reporting we've done this week is to say, well, what happened in 2016? Who cares? It's like, no. Understanding exactly what was going on behind the scenes in 2016 is key to understanding the the dramatic ebb and flow of financial reform in the last 10 years under under Pope Francis that you know you can't understand why he has seemed to be simultaneously and in succession both vigorously for and vigorously against his own reforming plans unless you understand what's going on behind the scenes and who was saying what and reporting what and investigating what and that's what we tried to flesh out in a lot of our reporting this week and it's been very interesting i mean you had um memos being circulated to senior cardinals saying that the Council for the Economy, which is you know supposed to be this big final oversight board for the whole of the Curia, you know you had members of it saying we don't know what we're for anymore. We don't know right. what this thing is. We're window in, dressing. Yeah, and the you know the audit committee saying you know this entire department is in danger of becoming a charade. That you know we're we're giving the appearance of reform, but nothing's actually going on. You know it's it, it's not good, um, but at the same time. This needs to be reported. This needs to come out of the light. And you, you see, you know, you mentioned the sort of independence. 
of these departments like the Secretariat for the Economy and the Auditor General's Office, one of the things that people have said right the way along, including Libro Maloney in recent weeks since he filed his suit, is that um, people tried to sort of bully them out of investigating instances of financial malpractice, if not outright criminality in the Curia. And when they wouldn't be bullied or intimidated, they tried to basically just turn the lights off on them. And, you know, Maloney has said publicly that, you know, his his budget was effectively um, put under the purview of APSA, which is a, a sort of Vatican sovereign, it's the sort of Vatican sovereign wealth manager and paymaster. Um, and it's also a key department that he was charged with auditing and administering. So he's like, you know, my mm-hmm. budget was subject to the guys I was investigating for corruption. And that, you know, that just doesn't work. And one of the things he reported this is that the Secretariat for the Economy, which is Pell's old department, had its own independent operating budget. It was supposed to be reporting to no one but the Pope directly, all of this stuff. Um, and they had an operating budget of, you know, 4 million euros in, a, in an account at the IOR, which is a bank in Vatican City. And then, you know, we talked to That was just some, their operating budget, how they did yeah, their work. Yeah, how, yeah, they, how they paid staff, how they, right. you know, bought computers and all that stuff. Um, and they woke up one morning and the account was empty. Like the 4 million was just gone. Right. And, you know, so what we reported this week is that they filed a suspicious transaction report with the, with the AIF, which is the, now it's the, now it's the ASIF, but at the time it's called the AIF, which is the Vatican Financial Information Authority and said, you know, we, basically the financial police. Yeah. And, um, the investigation was, was reluctantly undertaken. We were told mm-hmm. that they didn't want to look into the complete disappearance of the operating budget of the Holy See secretary for the economy. And when they did, uh, they said, well, it turns out the Secretary of State drained your account, and it was Cardinal Betchew who ordered it, and uh, we think that's okay. And the Secretary said, what do you mean that's okay? And they just kind of said, well, that's what we've decided. And, you know, what was told to us by officials, senior officials very close to the Secretariat for the Economy uh, this week was that, you know, one of them said to me, well, of course, we didn't understand this decision at the time, but now we know that the president of the AIF now former president of the AF, Rene Brulhart, had an ongoing relationship with the Secretary of State, which of course was a story we broke more than a year ago about right. how he had a he was basically doubling he his was a salary. consultant. He had a consultant gig yeah. there while working. I mean a huge conflict of interest because basically a job and a consulting gig for two subsidiary organ you know, a, a subsidiary. He was supposed to be the Vatican's financial watchdog and at the right. same time the biggest dog that needed watching um, was paying him six figures Money to help him not get watched, to help them not yeah, get watched. It, it, I mean, it's just yeah. extraordinary. So, you know, we're, we're, this reporting is all fleshing out exactly what's going on. And this is, this is exactly the kind of context and detail, which a lot of people have noted with frustration, myself included, um, has not been fleshed out during the Vatican financial trial, which is currently ongoing, which is, they seem to be focusing on these, you know, Little things, little things, picky things and, you know, missing the point of, you know, well, there are allegations, credible allegations of widespread corruption going on. And where's the big picture in all of this? And so what we're seeing is the big picture is starting to emerge as a sidecar to the actual trial that's going on. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, Another interesting thing which happened this week, and in fact, the last two weeks is um, Cardinal Angelo Becciu has has uh, has had some bad luck in in Italian courts. Uh, he in 2020, when he was forced to resign all his carrial positions and his rights as a cardinal, he launched a series of lawsuits, um, one against the Italian news magazine Espresso and uh, another against his former deputy and sort of prosecution star witness against him, Monsignor Alberto Perlasca, um, in Italian courts for for defamation and damages, effectively saying that, you know, Espresso's coverage of the Vatican financial scandal, which was interesting coverage. I read it. It wasn't as good as ours, but it was, you know, they did a, they did a good job. They did, yeah. a, they, did a, they did an acceptable job. Why did he sue them instead of us? Effectively, because we have something called the First Amendment. Well, yeah, basically. Which I mean, is, we, I mean, we, we, we have we heard from Cardinal Betsy's many attorneys many, many times suggesting that our, we have compromised his ability to operate in the life of the church. I don't know if we've ever gotten the direct line that he could have been hope safe for you guys, but our response or the response of our attorneys is always like, well, if you're going to sue us, you have to do it here in the United States where people are allowed to report things that are uh, true, true or that are not intended, <laughs> etc. So yeah. there's that. But anyway, so Cardinal Becciu tried to sue Espresso in, in court in Sardinia, in his native Sardinia, where I assume he thought he would get a, the most po- favorable possible hearing um, from judges. And he tried to sue them for $10 million, saying that they cost him his chance to be elected pope. Um, the court disagreed. 
and uh, yeah. has, has dismi- dismissed the suit this week and uh, ordered him to pay the espresso's costs. So there's that. And that comes on top of a uh, little more than a week ago, about 10 days ago, I think it was November 11th, uh, a court in Como, which had already dismissed a lawsuit that he brought against Monsignor Perlaska. Um, he sued Perlaska for half a million euros, saying that he damaged his health and reputation. As near as I can tell by being a cooperating witness for the prosecution in Vatican City, which I find remarkable because one of the charges Cardinal Becci was facing in the Vatican is that he attempted to suborn Perlaska's testimony, basically tried to witness tamper and prevent him from giving evidence. And I don't know how he's going to defend himself against that charge, given that he tried to sue Perlaska into silence in open court. That's right. Um, But anyway, that lawsuit was... And the judge decided that he... (laughs) A judge decided that he effectively was using the legal system to intimidate a potential witness against him. Yes. And yeah. so, I mean, the, the lawsuit was dismissed. The lawsuit against Perlaska was dismissed uh, last December, but there was a secondary ruling uh, earlier this month on November 11th, I think it was, um, basically finding Betchu guilty of abusing the legal process and ordering him to pay not just costs, which in this case is going to amount to some 40,000 euros, um, but also awarded Perlaska nine grand in damages against Betchu. So um, I, I hope Cardinal Betchu uh, is not going to be um, placed in, in financial straits by all of the all of the legal fees he suddenly finds himself paying outside of Vatican City, in addition to presumably paying his lawyers to defend him in court at Vatican City. But he's had a, he's had a bad run of luck. And um, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> well, so... At the same time that all this is going on, I mean, this is why everything just is coming to a head right now, is that um, the wheels have fallen off of Betchu's lawsuit. Documents are coming out. And at the same time that documents are coming out, you've got Libero Maloney saying, effectively, filing another lawsuit, a wrongful termination lawsuit, the guy who was whose office was defunded, you know, or the guy whose office was, the, whose oversight office was defunded by Betchu, saying, I'm coming after you guys for wrongful termination, saying, effectively, that you fired me because I found out about a lot of these problems. And when if I get to court, I'm going to have to demonstrate as evidence all of the problems that I found, which is just, you know, I mean, if nothing else, Libero Maloney is gutsy because he's, you know, he's telegraphing the fact that he intends to um, reveal a lot of things which have uh, to date been hidden. Um, but it, it, it does He said feel he will like, name names. Yeah, he, he said, said he will name names. Yeah. And so it feels like all of this is uh, is coming to a head. And, uh, you know, for Betchu, it's just not looking good on all sides is there some other than maloney or dd or otherwise demonstrating something definitive enough to sort of um be mean a conviction for betchu or you know a sort of absolute implication for betchu which i think is proven already in the media but not in a courtroom um is there any way out for him? I mean, you know, Petru seems to be the oh, kind sure. of cat who has um, nine lives, right? Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a way out for him. And, I, and the I, way I'm not saying I be- want him to have one. I'm just wanting to understand. No, no, I, I'd say the way out for, the, the best way out for Petru at this point is becoming increasingly clear, which is just, you know, good old-fashioned incompetence on the part of the Vatican prosecutors. You know, you mentioned the chief prosecutor, Alessandro Didi, and I have to say, Didi is making a compelling case for, uh, against himself and his own ability to, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, locate his own shoes. Uh, he's uh, which, by he's the way, the, British court said like about a year and a half ago. We don't think these people can do this. We don't. Yeah, the, the, when Gianluigi Torsi, if you know who he is, you know who he is. If you don't, take my word for it. He's significant. Um, <laughs> when the Vatican was trying to extradite him from London, the judge basically dismissed the extradition claim and said, "I've, the I've read the submissions of Vatican doing, yeah. prosecutors and." These people appear to be clowns, was basically his conclusion. Um, but of course, you know, when Libero Maloney filed his suit for wrongful dismissal earlier this month, the response of the Vatican prosecutors was basically to say, well, okay, we're going to resurrect the criminal case against you for spying, stroke auditing, right. depending on how you want to. And, you know, I was at a press conference with Libero Maloney, and he was just sort of incredulous about this. He's, you know, I, how is this possible? These are supposed to be the guys who are prosecuting all of the people I was investigating and auditing and who forced me out. And so Didi now looks like he's in the position where his default response is, if a name crosses his desk, he just says, well, I'll prosecute them. I, I'm not entirely sure what for, and I'm not entirely sure how, but that that's going to be my knee-jerk reaction. I mean, it's, it is utterly intellectually incoherent to suggest that you are going to simultaneously prosecute Libero Maloney 
and Angelo Betchu at Bechu, the same that's time. Right. That's, that's not right. you can't credibly maintain right. they're both guilty. Either it's you one believe one and not yeah. the other, and you want to prosecute that case, or the other way around. But you can't say, "Well, you're you're both guilty." I, that that's like it's it. And I, I want to be clear: I'm not saying that prosec- public prosecutors don't have a duty to follow every possible instance or evidence of wrongdoing in their jurisdiction. Of course, they do. I'm just saying the case against either is predicated on the other. And so they are mutually contradictory, that it is an expression not of sort of even-handedness, but of double-think on the part of Didi to propose, as he appears to be doing, to prosecute both at the same time. That That's just totally incoherent. And since it would be going before the same panel of judges, you would expect the judges to just sort of go, you guys don't know what the hell you're doing. Which, you know, you asked me, is there a way out for Betchu? That's the way out. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. So he could end up, Betchu could end up with the... Uh, with the bigger side of the wishbone, so to speak, just because only one of these only one of these things can play out. Yeah. See how I made a Thanksgiving thing there? I did. That was well played. Yeah, that's right. Okay, great. You know, the um the Vatican financial affair, Ed, is um the best free show in town, except obviously for pillar subscribers who are subsidizing everyone else's free viewership of that uh show. But um the bat the uh, the uh which thank you for doing so. The uh, the Vatican Financial scandal, Ed, is just, I mean, every turn a surprise. Hold your breath, it gets better, so to speak. Um, and so it's, it's if you care about financial reform at the Holy See, you care about it. And if you just are fascinated by it, if you're watching with horrified fascination, as it were, then you're doing that. But, you know, are there, I've been trying to think, are there takeaways in what we have seen in the financial challenges of the Holy See, so to speak, for diocesan and ecclesiastical administrators in the United States, where yes. people have sort of long said, oh, you know, the coming financial scandals will be far greater than any scandal that we've seen heretofore, and I, I, I can't predict or not predict that. But there are, you know, latent financial problems in the life of the Church at all levels. And I've just been trying to think about what the lessons might be of um, of Rome for dioceses and other ecclesiastical The, the lessons for, from Rome on finances for American dioceses should be the same lessons that Rome should have learned from American dioceses in the sexual abuse crisis and didn't, which is everything done in the dark will be brought to the light. It is all going to come out over a long enough time horizon. And one is doing oneself absolutely no favors and doing the church an act of disservice by thinking you can just keep a lid on these things indefinitely and hope that it will eventually all just go away, that it doesn't go away, that, you know, the guys in Rome thought that they got away with all of the stuff that was happening, you know, in the sort of years of 2015 to 2017 and just thought, well, everyone's gone now. Maloney's gone. Pell's gone. You know, we could just move on to life and get back to business. And it's not true. It's all repeated back on them. And this was a lesson that Rome refused to learn from American diocese in the sexual abuse crisis in the lead up to the McCarrick scandal of 2018. And, you know, as a result, we are seeing, you know, look at poor France, you know, talk about lessons that weren't learned from the United States diocese of, you know, bishop after bishop after cardinal after cardinal facing historical accusations and having remained in post and not said anything and, you know, served in one case on the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. And, you know, know, what's the lesson to learn? Get out in front of this stuff now. That's right. Because it's all going to come out. It always does. I know some ecclesiastical administrators, pastors or bishops who feel like they're not competent financially and they feel like, um, you know, they just don't have a handle on their books. And sometimes that can lead to them, without any kind of malfeasance or ill intention, feeling like they don't have any kind of handle on their books or they don't have control of their books can actually kind of compound on itself so that someone else is watching the books and sort of spiraled. And before you know it, you know, things are just not right and the person isn't sure how to get out from under it. I think being able to say uh, a a big lesson for the Vatican financial scandal is being able, is, is having the confidence, I think, to say, I don't quite know what I'm doing here, and I need some help to get a sense of what the financial situation is, and then some consultation and guidance about how to get on track. Um, you know, better to come for help on something, and this is true for anything, but true for financial affairs too, better to come for help on something which is simmering, and uh, then let it sort of be discovered in a way that seems implicating, and also which has been, You know what you would know, be a great thing? Worse. What's that? Um, I'm always seeing projects being launched 
that are, you know, aimed to help the church by whatever. And it's, you know, well-meaning Catholics of certain means or whatever funding this project or that project to, you know, bring transparency to this or highlight the need for that in the life of the church or whatever. It would be really cool if there was like as a nonprofit in this country set up basically an auditing and account, a, a flying auditing and accounting squad that could go in pro bono to any bishop's diocese who, who wanted it and just said, I, I'm not sure what's going on here. I need help. And like have a, have, have a sort of surgical squad that could go in. And it's like, you know, that's what we're here for is we're here to just do this for bishops. It's just I help think, them yeah, right. get their head. And around, pastors so. too. I mean, I think yeah. all dioceses have an independent, I can't think of a U.S. diocese that doesn't have an annual independently exercised audit of sort of conformity to budget, but that's not the same as, Let's look at the state of your financial affairs and help you. There are tons of consultants who are sort of money makers who are like, we can give you this one system that if you just do this one thing, your diocese will be blah, blah, blah. Or if you buy, you know, if if you predicate your the entire financing on your diocese of buying um, Amway through us and then selling it off, you'll be, you'll never have a financial problem again. I mean, there's tons yeah, no, of I'm talking about that. I'm talking about plumbers. I'm talking right. about guys who can yeah, come no, in and right, say, exactly. we'll show you where the leaks are in your pipes. Yeah, that's right. A team of, actually, it's a, it's probably a team of financial people, canonists and lawyers to sort of untangle the canonical implications of certain financial situations, the civil law implications of certain kind of financial situations, and then kind of accounting team people who can get that in, in order. But no, I think that's, but you think you see the the thing is you said it you know there are always sort of rich people who want to spend money on this or that which is going to help the church. It is my observation that with very few exceptions, most people who want to write big six figure or seven figure checks for things which are going to help the church um, want either to implement some system which they already have. This is the thing that made me a success in business, and so if you just do this thing. Not to understand the thing on its own terms or want something which is very interesting for engaging with some element of kind of some flashy, sexy, controversial point of culture. Um, But uh, the actual hard work of like governance and how to run a finance council uh, as it is, not how to run a finance council because I know how to run a board of directors, but how to run a finance council as it is, as in order to be the thing which it's supposed to be, not to be some other thing – the sort of even the gritty work of learning. Oh, the church is not a business. Here's what the church is. Here's what I do not see a lot of philanthropists, so to speak, or maybe they call themselves social investors or something like that. I do not see a lot of people lining up to do that to put their money into that kind of gritty hard work. So much as I see people lining up to sort of remake things in their own image. I used to be on a board with this guy who was a sort of Silicon Valley guy, and uh, he had, he was like a skillionaire or something. I don't know. He's like super rich, and um, he could not stop talking about how every diocese needs to see itself as a startup. And, and, and he had this whole, a whole thing about what it means that every diocese needs to see itself as a startup and da 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 and how he was trying to put money into, and he was trying to get bishops on board to take his money, to let it, to let him teach them how to take the best of startup culture and da da da. And it's just like, why, just because, something works for one kind of thing, you have to know what a thing is. It actually goes back to what Bishop Flores said this last week about synodality. To assess the challenges for a thing, you first have to know what it is. And uh, I don't know why I'm on a soapbox about this right now, but you, to assess the church and its needs and its effectiveness and its ability to conform to its mission, you have to know what it is to be fundamentally a communion of the baptized and a hierarchical institution, um, both divine, divinely instituted and with, uh, with, with human membership. And uh, and at the same a sacrament of salvation, and at the same time know the mission of the church was for, and then know the kind of governance structures of the church and these kinds of things. Um, you can't assess its problems until you can diagnose what it is. And so the reason why I don't think you get, I'm just on my soapbox now, but the reason why I don't think you get a lot of people to send a traveling team of canonists, lawyers, and accountants to help bishops fix their thing is because so often, I think a great challenge for us in uh, in sort of American Catholic culture is a desire to remake the church in the image of these other things which we revere, the kinds of businesses we run, the kind of social institutions we run, what we, we observe. We watch West Wing, and so we think the chance we should operate like the West Wing or whatever. You know, instead of really trying to understand what are the practical, concrete implications of the nature of this thing, and then how does it best conform to its own identity? But that's an important lesson from... That's an important lesson, I think, from the from the Vatican Finance Scandal, too. Ask for help. Also, know what it is, right? I mean, like, these guys... 
you know, these portfolios that are like, we're going to be, today we're going to be speculative real estate investors and we're only going to be speculative real estate investors because it didn't work out for us to be speculative and gold oil field investors. It's like, come on. The thing that reading through these um, memos and reports that we got a hold of this week, uh, the thing that put, it put me most in mind of, of, you know, if you're talking about inelegant analogies of the church thing is like this other thing is, is actually the collapse, collapse of FTX. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, know. you know, because okay. I was reading all this stuff about FTX because I think crypto is BS fundamentally. And, I, you know, it's monkey cartoons that people pretend are worth tens of thousands of dollars and stuff like that. So I've always been skeptical of that sort of nonsense. I concur, but, sir. Hard yeah. sterling only for me. Uh, I actually do concur, but I obviously don't. Sure. Anyway, so I, but I was, I've been reading through the, you know, you, you saw the guy who... Um, I have paid almost no attention to FTX. To okay, so the guy they've put in charge of managing the bankruptcy of FTX oh, is Carlo Tagli. No. <laughs> what? Sorry, I'm getting a little punchy yep. right before Thanksgiving. Sorry. Yeah, that's d- the d- guy d- they d- took d- out of being in charge of Caritas. Uh, charity. They took Cardinal Tagli out of being in charge of charity this week, not put him in charge of crypto. No. Um, but anyway, so uh, the, the guy who they put in charge of FTX is this guy who professionally manages high-profile bankruptcies. Like, he's the guy who took Enron through bankruptcy and everything. Like He's Mr. Wolf for bankruptcies. Yeah, well, exactly. And so he can't... He is he's he Mr. Never Wolf? Seen, yes. I mean, I, he's not literally Harvey Keitel in a dinner jacket, but yeah, yeah that's the idea. Okay. Anyway, um, he said he'd never... Like, he, he'd never seen anything as bad as this when you consider he managed Enron. Tells you how bad Whoa, it was. Oh, I mean, I worked on Enron. I never seen anything like that. I mean, crypto... I mean, first of all, I had to ask my kid what it is. But second of all, I'm wrong. Well, anyway, he was talking about how there was no record of what they were even invested in. Like they had all of yeah. these millions and hundreds of I thought they were only invested in crypto. I thought no, that was no, no, the whole no, 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 no. That was their product. But I, th- I thought the, that was their product, but also their sort of a- reserve assets no, to manage they, through a crisis were crypto. They were also in, they they were also invested to the tunes of hundreds of millions, if not billions, in like other stuff like stock and future. You know, the, the yeah, ordinary these guys port- invested in some kind of highway in North but Carolina. They didn't write I don't it know down. what this. Come like, on, this guy goes in they there didn't write and it down. Boy, they're no, they didn't. Their like there's no record like of it. Like they, this is how was, we would run a crypto exchange, by the way. No, but like one of the things he reported was he was asking. The, the staff of this and like, well, where is our, you know, what, what is this company invested in? Where are its assets actually yeah. invested? And the response was, well, I don't know, try Googling it. Maybe there might be some news reports on it. Like they had no idea. And like, this is, this is not dissimilar to what we were reading about. in you know, some of the stuff around the secretary of state's investments yeah. and, you know, it's like, you know, what, where, where does the money go? Well, I don't know. We've got boxes of gold and sometimes we send them out the door to be reminted into coins and stuff or metals. And sometimes we don't actually keep any paperwork of that. And, you know, we, I don't know. There's just stuff around. I, have a look. I like, just want that, to say, Edward. Yeah, go ahead, please, please. No, that's it. I'll stop now. I, I am really, really glad that we're talking about this. This turned into actually a very kind of interesting and important conversation, both about the Lafayre's Vatican and also Lafayre's local. Um, it means, though, I just want to really, I really wanted to say this. One of the things that was announced at the USCCB meeting was something called the, these Eucharistic, I can't remember if they're, they're called Eucharistic pilgrimages from the four corners of America. So from, I don't know, San Francisco, somewhere on the East Coast, the headwaters of the Mississippi, and I think the border with Mexico in the Diocese of Brownsville, Ahead of the big Eucharistic uh, revival to do in Indiana um, in 2024, in the summertime, which I think you guys know about, there's going to be a big to-do at Lucas Oil Stadium where people come and adore the Eucharist and there are days of catechesis and whatnot, a kind of world youth thing. Ahead of that, there are going to be four Eucharistic pilgrimages, they're calling them, teams of people. I don't know who the people are, but teams of people who will go from these places, Brownsville, Headwaters of the Mississippi, somewhere on the East Coast, San Francisco, and process, I don't know what the logistics of that are, to Indiana, I presume with the monstrance, with the Blessed Sacrament, and in major cities, they'll have Eucharistic processions with the diocesan bishop and all kinds of things. And Ed, I just think this is, this does not sound to me like something which is done, which is conceived of by sort of marketers. This sounds to me like something which was conceived of hundreds and hundreds of years ago because Eucharistic processions across large swaths of territory are a deeply kind of Catholic thing to do. And uh, we're doing it here in the United States. And I, just, I there's going to be a lot of to do about the Eucharistic revival still to come. I think there's some more controversy about it among the bishops than they're letting on based upon my conversations with bishops both for and critical. Um, so there's still a lot of to do. But I just want to say like these things, these pilgrimages, which we will doubtlessly have more information about because I'm interviewing a bishop about them in an hour, um, are just really, really a cool thing that are evocative for me of the big Urbi et Orbi that I've mentioned so many times, the big Urbi et Orbi of Pope Francis during the pandemic when the thunder came and the lightning and the Pope had the monstrance and it was just this like 
powerful moment of Christian, of, of, of real sacramentality, of symbol and reality in one. And now we'll have these processions in which we carry the body of Christ across the soil of this country. We consecrate the soil of this country with the blood of Christ. I just, dude, I think this is like a, one of the most Catholic things that our church as you know, in the in an aggregate of, of at a, certainly at the level of the Episcopal Conference has done in a very long time, if if ever, if never before. I mean, to carry the body of Christ to proceed as servants of Christ the King from the four corners of America. I'm just like this is this is if you want to talk about a sacramental imagination, buddy, this is it. I think it's super cool. It is super cool, and we are going to talk a lot more about this because the, this is a, a really. As you said, it's, it comes from an authentically Catholic and sacramental imagination. It is not a marketing gimmick. That's and right. That is, that is a wonderful and beautiful thing, and you didn't spell it out, so I will do for this. This is what you've been trailing about, giving thanks, Eucharist. Eucharist means, means Thanksgiving. <laughs> See yeah. what I did there? Yes. Yes. Well done. It was well played. All right. We've got to wrap this up because I've got a thing. Um, Ed, what is Thanksgiving Trivia 2022, Ed Condon, on the spot? Ed, where do wild turkeys sleep? In trees. Wow! Wow, Ed. Well done. Isn't that common knowledge? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, um, that's where Ed, you hunt them. I mean... You hunt them while they're sleeping? Look, you... You would if walk you're up on to a bird and shoot it while it's sleeping? No, that's poor sportsmanship. I, I disagree. If you're hunting I do not for... Think people, I do not think people shoot a bird while it's sleeping. Why no, not? They, it, they, they pull a little thing. It makes a turkey-like sound. The turkey comes towards it or away from it, and they shoot the moving bird. You do not hunt a sleeping thing. Look, you said it's poor sportsmanship. If you're hunting an animal for sport, sure, it's poor sportsmanship. If you're hunting a turkey for food, you just want to get I suppose if you're hunting a turkey for food, but I don't think that huntsmen hunt turkeys while they're sleeping. If the only time wild turkeys go up trees is to sleep, I've seen a lot of turkeys shot out of trees. Oh. Okay. I, I, I'm sure the turkey hunters will let me know. Ed, which founding father of America preferred the turkey to the bald eagle as the... Ben Franklin. Okay. Very, very good. Uh, Ed, um, what True is story. This? The first piece of writing I was ever paid for was a book review of a biography of Ben Franklin. Oh, that's interesting. It'll shock you to learn I was scathing of both Ben Franklin and the author. Uh, it does not in the slightest bit shock me uh, to learn that. Um, Ed... What color are turkey eggs? Are they are they not a kind of mottled color? They are. They are. You're really, you know a lot about turkeys. turkeys. <laughs> yeah. And what is a snood? A snood is a kind of um, shawl hoodie thing, you know? Say more, cape. please. It's sort of cape hood type thing you might wear. Vis-a-vis -vis turkeys, what is a snood? Oh, is it? It's like dangly head thing. It's the dangly bit over its beak. Yeah, yeah. And Ed, what is a snood for? In the turkey? In the turkey. To make it amusing to look at, obviously. Yes, but not just for us, for females. No, it's a mating thing. It the is snood a... is for mating. The snood, the turkeys, the male turkeys, the toms, I believe they're called, the toms waggle their heads in such a way as to make the snoods dip, dance, dive, and bedazzle yeah. the ladies. And, uh, and in so doing... Um, they uh, they attract mates. Lady, yes, lady it is, it's the turkey equivalent of a flocculent mustache. <laughs> it seems very much um, to be uh, precisely that. Okay, that's that's what I got for you. Well, I'm I'm I think it's the first you time you've given me a trivia thing that I've actually. Well. <laughs> I feel you satisfied. You did incredibly incredibly well, and I just want to commend you. All right. I'm, uh, I'm just going to ask you a, a series of – you can call them yes or no's if you want, but I, yeah. I, I'm going to allow you to develop points here. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious. What I is, will. I'll what develop is, points. What is, the, what is the Flynn family Thanksgiving dinner going to look like? Are you strictly well, turkey? we gather you... together to ask the Lord's blessing. Oh, no. Yeah. No. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Bizarre Please, Protestant hymns to one side. Um, are you a strictly turkey household? Are you turkey plus other meat? He or chastens and hastens his will to make known. There and we what go. we do is we have a turkey, and then we're we're from New Jersey, so we have um, a lasagna or baked ziti, and oh. then we have baked macaroni and cheese. So turkey is probably the only meat. Maybe someone will show up with a ham or something like that. But turkey is probably the only meat. But what's important at our table is often um, lasagna or baked ziti. And then I'm going to go pick up today. Do you know what green chili is? I mean, apart from parsing the words, 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Green chili is a Colorado delicacy. People from New Mexico will say it's a New Mexico delicacy, but they don't know what they're talking about because what they drink is basically what they have as chili is basically soup, and our thing is different than that. Green chili is a Colorado delicacy that which I very much enjoy and which I enjoy having on the Thanksgiving table because I don't eat it very often. It's not very good for you, uh, and so I'll go pick up today maybe a gallon of green chili and we'll have that as well, which has pork in it, and so pork, turkey, probably okay. lasagna. Right. Where are you on cranberry sauce? Are, are you a can. make from straight str- can wobbler? I like a can wobbly wobbler? can of cranberry sauce. Really? Yes. Hmm. All right. Now uh, th- this final one. I, this is. Uh, I, I give you full Nudes. license. I love a snood. I'm a sucker for a snood, Ed. What can you do? You know, it's what it is. Um, I have always maintained that actually the best part of Thanksgiving is the, is the is the sandwich the day after. Mm-hmm. How do you construct your ideal post Thanksgiving sandwich? Let me tell you something, there, brother. Love. Um, Mrs. Flynn had been accruing kind of points that could be redeemed for a turkey at the grocery store, you know, Mm -hmm. something which would be, and then it turned out that we weren't going to host Thanksgiving. My sister was going to host Thanksgiving, which is great. Really wonderful. We kind of take turns. It wasn't like Mrs. Flynn had been counting on her or something like that. We just, you know, when we planned it, we planned that my sister would host Thanksgiving. So Mrs. I understand family tensions in the Flynn family. No, there's no family tension. No, none whatsoever. Yeah. There's no family tension. The lady doth protest too much, but okay. I just don't want to get in trouble for purporting something which is not true. You mentioned in the same sentence two female members of your family and a possible issue of contention. You've already done, you've gone. No, they love each other. Of course they do. They're like best friends. Okay, so anyway, Absolutely. we're going to Thanksgiving at my sister's house, but we like having uh, leftovers. So Mrs. Flynn picked up that turkey, which she merited by her grocery store points, and is going to cook it on Friday morning at our house so that we can have leftover city with a fresh turkey. Like basically just so that we can have turkey as a leftover. I'm super psyched about that. That is a, is a genius idea. Wonderful woman. That is a genius idea. What yeah. you want to do, by the way, listeners, if you're constructing your ideal Thanks. First of all, the most important aspect of making a good sandwich is proper gravy preparation the day before. You need to do this with the with the fluids. Mrs. Flynn roasted a bunch of wings, or not? No, Mrs. Flynn mm-hmm. boiled a bunch of wings yesterday with various good. other things. Turkey yes, wings. Yes, that's then... what you want to do. Never throw the giblets away. You want to boil them yeah. separately. Reduce that down. Add it to your turkey juices and fat. That can end up with flour. But if you get the consistency right, and you put it in the fridge overnight, and it sets to a sort of um, sort of yeah, gelatinous pudding like consistency. You can then use that as a spread. Yeah, for the sandwich, and that's how you want to do it. There you go. Excellent. Okay, great. I Ed I would like to say that I am thankful for you. And, I am thankful uh, for you, JD. Okay, that's enough of that. And uh, and listeners, really and sincerely, which we said at the end of last week, but would just say again, we are deeply thankful for you and for the community of the Pillar and the Pillar Podcast. And if you are thankful for the Pillar Podcast, please uh, consider. Becoming a subscriber, signing someone else up, upgrading your subscription, or otherwise helping us continue to do this thing that we do because that will make our wives thankful for you and our children, obviously, as well. Yes? Very much so. Okay. We will see you in Advent. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar Co-Founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Gobble, gobble, gobble.